I love how your words are such a testimony to everything that we're learning in his words. So thanks for sharing that so we can give glory to God. It's a beautiful day, and it's great to be with you beautiful women. And uh, I was thinking about, I've, I've been trying to do little stories that go along with our topic, and so it was only yesterday I saw this TV commercial, which was perfect because it was about worry. It was about this mom who was very worried that she had a son and she had not told him that she was pregnant. And so she kept putting it off and putting it off because she, for some reason it, it really frightened her. So she finally said to her son, you know, have you noticed anything different about mommy? And he said, yes, your head is getting smaller. <laughs> We worry about silly things. (laughs) We have been sitting at the feet of Jesus, and those who had climbed the mountain with Jesus were discovering that to take on the righteousness of Christ was going to be very different than living out the righteousness of their religious leaders and the Pharisees and their scribes and teachers. What Jesus had been teaching was radical. It was shocking. It was amazing. It was liberating. And so today he continues his words on the mountain and he says, and now let's talk about values. And the values of your spiritual leaders are not the values that I expect from my disciples. False doctrines lead to false values. And so the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees and the scribes had led to a perverted view of money and possessions and material things and relating to people. And I thought about that and thought, unfortunately, the world we live in today has also distorted what true values really are. And we, as Christians who know so much better, It's easy for us to just fall into that pattern that the world has and place value on the wrong things. And so it's great today because Jesus has some wonderful words for us, so we won't do that. I heard about this family that had three young kids, and they loved Garbage Day. And they had a big picture window in their living room. And so every time it was, you know, garbage day, the three kids would run and press their faces against the glass and see that. And so one day the dad happened to be home that morning and he he brought his wife in the room and he said, you know, it was his wife's 35th birthday. So he said, kids, do you know what makes today a special day? And the little five-year-old ran right past the mom and said, it's garbage day! And I thought, what a great picture of what it's easy for us to do. We run right past the valuable things and gaze out on things that are just basically not important (laughs) in the least. Look at Matthew 6.19. Here's what Christ has to say about that. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal... But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, don't run past me. 
Don't run past the love of your father and settle on something that just amounts to garbage. And so he says to his disciples, I want you to look deep into your heart and I want you to evaluate where your treasures really lie. Because most of the leaders in the days of Christ were preoccupied with things. They were materialistic, they were greedy, they were covetous, they valued possessions highly. You read in your homework that Luke called them lovers of money. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I expect something different from you. I expect you to treasure things about me. I expect you to treasure things that are heavenly, things about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says in those verses, don't store up yourself treasures, in the Greek, it's a picture of somebody who stacks out things in a row, like maybe coin collection or something like that, and they leave it there. It's not because they want to use this wealth. It's because they want to show it off. And it's because somehow it fulfills them. So when he says don't store up treasures, he's talking about wealth that is not going to be used. It's going to be shown off. This is about hoarding. On your outline, treasure doesn't have to do so much with what we own. It has everything to do with what owns us. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And after Christ talked to him a while, Jesus said, oh yeah, and by the way, gather all your possessions together and sell them and give that money to the poor. And the rich young leader just dropped his head and walked away sadly because he was very wealthy. Now, is that what Christ says to everyone? Get your possessions together, get rid of them. No. He says it to the people who are owned by their possessions. This rich young ruler had let his possessions own him. This is what the Pharisees were doing because they thought the more things, the more treasures we collect, the more people realize how pleased God is with us. They thought The more treasure you have, the more spiritually superior you are. Have you ever been to someone's house? I was just over at the Burr's house, and Michael Burr is going to marry Kara, and and Kathy Burr's got those gifts out. Have you ever seen where you go in their house, and the mom has taken all the wedding gifts for the bride and groom, and they're out on the table? And it's just so fun to look at those and think about how the couple's going to use those, and they're getting married, and... And I thought, what what about if the bride and groom just kept those treasures on the table? Yeah, would that not be ridiculous? If they said, you know, these show people are pleased with us. We're going to leave them here out. We're going to show them off. Everybody will realize we're pretty neat. We're not going to use them. We're just going to hoard them here. So everyone will think highly of us. And if you were one of the people that gave a gift, it would not make you very happy. You wanted them to use it. You wanted them to serve each other with it or have people in their house and serve other people or have a family. God can also not be pleased when we do the same things to him. Any gifts he gives us are meant to be used for him, 
for his kingdom, for his kingdom work. And what we do that's so ridiculous is we make the, the gifts become the treasure instead of the one who's given us the gifts. God gives us the gifts to be used for him and his glory. Look at 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So in these passages we just read, Jesus takes three great sources of wealth in Palestine and he wants to redirect the foolish thinking that the Jewish people had at this time. Their improper perspective of possessions had led them to invest in things that had no eternal value at all. And he starts out with things that the moth can destroy. In Palestine, part of a man's wealth, even in all the East, had to do with what they wore. They didn't have a lot of possessions, your average person. So if they could really get a gaudy, elaborate-looking outfit, they could look pretty wealthy. So this is what they did. And I thought about in the Old Testament, Elisha had a servant. And he went back to a commander that Elisha had cured of leprosy, and without Elisha knowing it, the servant said, my, my master wants two changes of clothing. He wants two garments, which was a lie. He was just being selfish. But I thought, what an interesting thing to ask for. That showed that you were somebody, if you had some nice clothes. I thought about Achan during the time of Joshua. They plundered the Babylonians. They were supposed to leave things. Achan goes back. And what does he want to get? A beautiful robe. He took some money too, but he made sure he had a beautiful robe. Jesus says about clothing, there is no permanent value here. The moth can destroy it. And then he tells them, what about things that the rust can destroy? The word rust literally means eating away. And a lot of theologians think that it's not necessarily talking about um, things that rust as we know today, that it could be referring to produce. In other words, one of the signs of being wealthy back then was to have a great big barn filled with corn and grain, and that if you have this barn filled with your crops... Eventually, when you have big crops, you have big rats, big insects that come into your barn and eat them away. Jesus says there's no permanent value in those kind of things. And possibly he could be referring to metals that corrode as well. Look at James 5. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. And thirdly, Jesus says, avoid things that can be stolen by thieves. And he says they can break in, and that literally means to dig in. We got to go to Israel a couple times and went to a house that they think could have been Peter's house, which was 
really great to envision Peter there, but I couldn't really imagine how he got into the house because you envision this big guy, and this was sort of a dugout home in the ground with some skinny little corridors made out of mud. Jesus is saying here, a thief will literally dig through the walls of your house, get in, and take your treasure away. There is nothing of any value if it can just be taken away in a moment's notice by some thief. The Jewish people had put more value on the things that don't last than they did on the one thing that does, and that's our relationship with God. And so on the hillside, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, don't do that. Don't do that. You'll be missing out on everything, everything that really matters, everything that will bring you contentment and peace and joy and everything I need you to be as my light while you're here on the earth. One man wrote this. You are to remember with the passion burning within you that you are not the child of today. You are not of the earth. You are more than dust. You are the child of tomorrow. You are of the eternities. You are the offspring of deity. All the fact of your life can't be encompassed in one small sphere upon which you live. You belong to the infinite. If you make your fortune on the earth, you've made a fortune and stored it in a place where you can't hold it. Make your fortune, but store it where it will greet you in the dawning of the new morning. Jesus says we can't do that if our heart is not right. Because when we have the wrong perspective on possessions, we begin to realize our heart is turning away from the real treasure and focusing on things that are not a treasure at all. In fact, our heart indicates where our treasure already is. We can't attempt to put our treasure in the right place if our heart hasn't gone on before us. Our heart has to be holy God's before our treasure lies in him. And when our heart is right, like Karen even was mentioning this morning, everything else falls into place. Everything falls into its proper place. It's not too hard to figure out where our heart is. If our happiness and our contentment seems to be attached to what we own or what we have saved or what we have financially or if our sadness and discontentment seems to be tied to what we own, what we have, what we've saved, what our finances are, then we can realize I have placed a high value on the things of the earth. But if we find our happiness relates to our relationship with God and the things of God, excuse me, sounds like thunder, okay, if that's where we find happiness, how we are with God and God's things, then we know it's God that holds the keys to our heart. I know of two families in this church who have lost everything in fires. And I know they, it was very emotionally trying for them, but it did not devastate them. 
because their worth was not tied to these things on the earth. I asked Jim Boyd to just write a sentence about when they lost their house. Jim and Carolyn Boyd, they lost everything that they owned. And this is what Jim said. After the adrenaline surge produced by the fire had left, I stood with tears in my eyes. I looked at my wife and three children. I looked at the neighbors and friends who stood closely by to console us. It was in that moment that God spoke to my heart. Be strong for your family's sake. And remember that you still have everything you need to live a happy life. Isn't that great? He has values on the right things, and God has used him, and they have as great a joy as anybody I know. Look at Matthew 6.22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is all about fixing our eyes on the right treasure, and it really should be translated if your eyes are clear, and that means single. And so if your eyes have a single focus, it's a single devotion to God. In other words, it's sort of like when you see those horses that are pulling a stage or whatever, and they've got these blinders on the side so that those things, those other things, don't get in the way of the really important thing. That song is really true. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then the things on earth just grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But when we let our vision get distorted, we become spiritually blind. In this passage, the word bad, if your eyes are bad, it actually means evil. Proverbs 28:22 says this, A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. You can almost get hypnotized sometimes by material things, and then we become blind to the true important things of God. I thought about Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you guys read that or got to see that, but Edmund, when he saw that candy, that Turkish delight, everything else didn't matter to him. He was blind. He didn't even care if his family was captured and carried away by a witch. His focus was on something that would just satisfy a desire that was not godly. This person, Jesus says, how great is their darkness because they think they have the light. So when we're that deceived, how great is our darkness? Look at Matthew 6, 24. Then Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And someone mentioned this morning I hadn't thought about, look at money is capitalized. It's sort of become a God. You and I would like to say we can have both. We can have God and we can have possessions. And we do. Every one of us in this room have God and have possessions. What we can't have is a devotion to God and a devotion to our possessions. We can't serve two masters. When we do that, we are allowing possessions to become our master. 
John Calvin said this, Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, then God has lost his authority. You can't really have two masters any more than you can walk in two directions at the same time. Our treasure is either here or it's in heaven. Our life is either full of darkness or light. Our master is either God or money because these two masters are very opposed to each other. And sometimes that's something we don't really want to believe. One commands us to walk by faith. One demands us to walk by sight. One commands us to be humble. The other brings us to a place of being proud. One calls us to set our things, our mind on things above. The other on things below. One calls us to love light and truth. The other leads us into darkness. One says, look for the eternal. The other one says, be satisfied on the temporal. And one brings us eternal satisfaction, while the other one really refuses to ever be totally satisfied. Only when God becomes our master will our possessions no longer be our masters. On your outline, our joy should not lie in our possessions, but in being possessed by God. Look at Psalm 135. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. You can substitute your name in there. You are God's possession. That's what brings us joy. Not just having possessions, being possessed by God. If we want to do that, if we want to change our heart, we have to be purposeful about knowing this God that possesses us. Jesus moves from these selfish treasures we value to the necessities of life that we have to have to exist. And I thought about that. What they considered basic needs are not what we would consider basic needs today. Their basic needs truly were basic needs. Food, clothes, drink. We've kind of added to the list. And with that has come a lot of problems. The rich are tempted to trust in their possessions, the poor are tempted to doubt in God's provision. And both of those problems end up with worry. And I think they apply to us today when we value being secure in the world more than being secure in our relationship with God. The Pharisees had learned from their pursuit of material things they actually had never learned to really walk by faith. So they fretted and worried about these material things in their life. And so Jesus' next words, he wants to look directly at that problem. Look at verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Jesus says to his disciples, don't be a worrier. Don't be anxious about your daily needs. And the word worry here means to choke or to strangle, which I thought that is exactly what worry is. It sort of emotionally takes the life out of us. In the next few passages, Jesus gives four reasons why worry is wrong. And the first one we just read, and it's worry on your outline, is being unfaithful to our master. 
When you started looking at verse 25, it says, therefore I tell you, could also be translated, for this reason I tell you. What's the reason? You look in the paragraph above. The reason is, God is your master. For this reason, God is your master. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't find security in something other than our master because that makes you unfaithful to him. Worry is distrusting the promise and the providence of God. I've talked to lots of people who have adopted children from orphanages, and you may know some, and they'll tell me that the first few weeks that they have this child in their home, they'll be going through their clothes or their bedroom, and they'll find, you know, pieces of a roll stuck in their pockets from the dinner before or some other kind of food. Or they'll look in the bedroom behind a book, and they've stored some kind of uh, part of their dinner. And, and they realize that they were used to their basic needs not being met very well, so they had to worry and fret and hide things because they weren't sure yet if this new family was going to really meet their needs and be their provider, and it took them time to trust that that would be the case. When we fret and have fears over the necessities of life, it's like we are hiding food in our pockets, unsure that God will really be able to provide and to meet our needs. So we come up with ways to make our own security instead of trusting that he is our faithful master. One of the names of God is Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. He is our provider. When we believe this in our hearts, we can let that fretting go away. Look at Philippians 4. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Secondly, Jesus says, worry is unnecessary on your outline because of our loving Father. And I love how, how he does this here. He, he's sitting on this hillside. He turns their attention away from each other, and he uses God's creation to make a point here. And when we pay close attention to God's creation, I really do think there is some healing and some truth that we can come away with that makes us face life in a more wise way. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they? And who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? First he points up. He says, look. Look at the birds. Doesn't God provide for them? And look. Look at the grasses and the lilies right next to us. Doesn't God provide for them? And then he points to them and he says, And what about you? Doesn't God care about you so much more than these other things he's created? You're created in the image of God. You've been called children of God. 
He is our Father. No bird and no flower has ever been promised to be heirs of Jesus Christ. No bird or flower has been promised a place in heaven. If God cares this much about things that have no promises, how much more will he care for you who have been destined to eternity with him? I thought about... What would it be like if one of our own children, every day we got up in the morning and they took off out the door and we saw that they were at the neighbors trying to get their needs for the day all together. Or if you didn't have a neighbor, you look out in the backyard and they're out there with a basket. You know, what are you doing? Well, I'm finding leaves to make a shirt. I'm gathering these nuts for my lunch. And we would think, man, that, that's unnecessary. I'm your loving mother. Get back in this house. (laughs) We have a loving father. We run around like that. We try to come up with our own ways to make sure that we feel secure. We are just like a fearful child. It's unnecessary. God did not create us and then abandon us. That's what he's talking about, about the birds and the flowers. He pursues us every single day of our life. Worry is distrusting God will finish what he has begun. One man said this, You believe God can redeem you, save you from sin, break the shackles of Satan, take you to heaven where he's prepared a place for you, keep you for all eternity, yet you don't trust him to meet your daily needs? Ephesians says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Thirdly, Jesus is going to say, worry on your outline is unreasonable because of our faith. Look at verse 31. He had just finished saying, oh, you of little faith, Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Worry does not match with our faith. And for the world that's out there that doesn't know the Lord, and they watch us act just like them, it's not very enticing. It looks like we have a God that really doesn't care about us or can meet our needs. Jesus uses the Gentiles to demonstrate this truth. They were the people that should have been warriors. They had gods that were made out of sticks. Gods made out of stone and rocks. They, they demanded a lot, these gods. They promised very little, and they actually delivered nothing. So the pagans, what did they have to do? They just had to think, we got to live we got to just try to make it through this day because tomorrow, who knows what's going to happen. Paul says their philosophy was let us eat and drink today for tomorrow we may die. So they pursued these things with fear and fretting. When we have the one true God, it's unreasonable for us to behave that way. We have a hope. We have a future. We have a God who does deliver. Jesus says in this verse, God's not unaware of your needs. Philippians 4, 6. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. On your outline fourth, Jesus says, Worry is unprofitable because God holds our future. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thought about the fact that there's always going to be a tomorrow. So if we choose every day to worry about tomorrow, then every day is a new day to worry. For the rest of your life. Worry makes each day another day to fear the future. God is the God of tomorrow like God is the God of today. Look at Lamentations 3. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. It doesn't do any good to worry about the future. Each new day is a gift. Each new day is not a burden. He gives us grace for each day as it comes. Isaiah 26 says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God we have an everlasting rock. This all sounds really good. This all sounds like, okay, I'm going to do it. And then we don't always do it. We just find it so hard not to fall into what the rest of the world does. But I love it that Jesus tells us how to do it. Look at Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The cause of worry is seeking the things of the world. The cause of contentment is seeking the things of God. Now, I'm not much one for formulas, but I think that's a good one. Because you and I have read many books about worry and how to stop doing that. And there are some excellent books out there. Calm My Anxious Heart, if this is something God's working on you on, that'd be a great book to read. I've read it a couple times. But everything comes down to this one truth. When we seek the things of the world, we will be worriers. When we seek the things of God, we will find contentment. He will be constantly renewing our heart and our mind and taking those fears off of us. If we want to quit being a worrier, we have to be a God seeker. And this is a discipline. And we grow and mature in this area. And the less we will cling to the fears that distract us from our real faith. We have a lot of options in this world when it comes to seeking things. Jesus says we are to seek first the things of the one to whom we belong. Two things. These are the Christians' priority of priorities. God's kingdom and God's righteousness. God's kingdom would be seeking his authority his dominion, his will in our life. Losing ourselves in obedience to him. 
Look at Job 23. I have not departed from the commands of God's lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread, more than my necessities. I am seeking God. And secondly, we seek his righteousness, righteousness, which means you seek his heavenly expectations for tomorrow, and we have a holy, righteous living for today. Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. Jesus says here, when we do that, when we make our priority, his kingdom and his righteousness, God will meet our needs. You might circle the word needs because it doesn't say God will meet our every want and desire. Sometimes he gives us a desire like he answered Karen's prayer. Some desires he thinks, that's not right for you right now. What I will do is meet your needs. I know what you need more than you know what you need. And that way we can believe our security lies in our relationship with our Father. And that is it. Finally, Jesus wants to redirect his followers' thinking on relating to each other as believers. And again, probably the people that were sitting at Jesus' feet had fallen into some bad habits from their leaders. Their leaders had developed their own standards of morality, so they had become self-appointed judges of everybody who should be following their rules. So they proudly looked down on everyone who was um, not part of their elite system, who wasn't doing things their way. They were unmerciful, unforgiving, unkind, without compassion and grace. Remember, Jesus compares them to the, the one that left the Good Samaritan in the road to be slowly dying after he's beaten up and robbed. It's a Pharisee and a high priest that walks the other way. This was the spirit of, of a critical, harsh spirit that the Jewish leadership had. They were everything the body of Christ is not supposed to be. So what Jesus is going to forbid in these passages is unwarranted, self-righteous condemnation that people put on each other based on human understanding. What he is not teaching here is that we should not be discerning, and he's not teaching that we overlook sin in the church. He is talking about a specific attitude of judgmentalism and being self-righteous. And he says there's three reasons why that's wrong. Look at verse 1, chapter 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. He's saying you are not the final court. You who look down at other people who aren't meeting your standards, you are not the final court. To judge is to play God. Look at James 4, 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? We pass judgments that only God's qualified to make. It sets man up as God, gives us a distorted view of ourselves. God doesn't call 
for men to stop being discerning about sin, but he does say, renounce the temptation to try to play God. Secondly, a judgmental spirit creates a false view of others. Look at verse 2. In the same way you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Somehow, when we judge others, it makes us feel superior to them. And that is where the Pharisees were. They looked down on everybody. In the body of Christ, there is no place for spiritual policemen who run around and look at people in an inferior way. In one of C.S. Lewis's books, he talks about heaven. And he gives this little story of a person who's brought up to look at heaven and he's looking around at the people and all at once, this bright light comes on and this woman walks out and she's got this white shimmering gown on and she sort of floats on past them. And this person that's being shown heaven says, ma'am, she must have been some kind of saint on earth. And the angel says, no, nobody really noticed her on earth. But God noticed her. We don't know people's motives and hearts, their prayer life, what they're doing, how God uses them. It's not our place to know that. God will judge us with that same type of judgment we judge others. Look at Romans 2. Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, friend, that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Finally, Jesus says being judgmental creates a false view of sin. Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you don't pay attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your other brother's eye. In order to be critical of each other, to be judgmental of each other, somehow we have to push down the fact that we have our own shortcomings. So we try to ignore them, or we try to diminish them, or we try to rationalize them, and we get a distorted view of what sin really is. Often what we're condemning in others is a very weakness that we have. In fact, Jesus is saying here, hey, you have bigger shortcomings than the people you're judging. Take care of yourself. Humble yourself. And when you've humbled yourself and gone to God, then go to help your brother, not to judge your brother. Go to help your brother with the shortcomings that he is dealing with in his life. Jesus finished this part of his message looking at his disciples and saying, you know, God values unity among brethren. God values the treasures in heaven. God values the work of his kingdom. Don't be like the rest of the world. Value what I value. And then you can rest in the hands of the Father. Worry and fears and fretting have no place in the disciples of Christ. We live under the constant security and provision of a God who loves us and calls us his own. Let me pray. We thank you and praise you, Father. You are so giving, and we receive so much from you. May we use it 
to know you more and to lead others to you. We praise you for this beautiful day in Christ's holy name. Amen.